Hi, I'm James Longster, a partner in Travis Smith's commercial IP and technology department and part of Travis Smith's cybersecurity group. In the previous episode of our podcast series, Mitigating a Data Breach Insider Threats, we took a look at the regulatory backdrop, including notification requirements in respect of a data breach. In this third and final episode, we discuss potential regulatory action and civil claims that you might face, as well as touching briefly on cyber insurance. I'm joined by Rachel Wilson, who is a senior counsel in our dispute resolution department. Thanks for joining, Rachel. So let's say you've reported a cyber incident to the regulator. What are the chances of further action being taken? Well, the ICO takes a risk-based approach to regulatory action and follows its regulatory action policy. And according to the ICO stats and up to the end of Q2 2022, it pursued an investigation in 37% of reported cyber incidents, took informal action in 19% of cases and no further action in 41% of cases. And in terms of what the ICO can do, it has various tools in its armory, which I'll briefly run through. So firstly, information notices, as the name suggests, requiring information, and this must be given within a specified time frame to assist the ICO's investigations. And then you have assessment notices. These allow the ICO to consider whether you are compliant. In extreme cases, the notice can require that the ICO be given access to premises and specified documentation and equipment. And with a warrant, the ICO can conduct a dawn raid on your premises. The most high profile example of which was the dawn raid in relation to the Cambridge Analytica investigation. Next, we have enforcement notices, which the ICO can issue where a data controller or processor has breached one or more of the data protection principles. And their purpose is to mandate action or prohibit further processing in order to bring about compliance, remedy a breach or both. And failure to comply may lead to further action, including possible penalty notices which the ICO issues for the most serious breaches, such as those involving intentional or negligent acts or repeated breaches. And the ICO will be more likely to impose a penalty where a large number of individuals have been impacted, where there's a degree of damage, which can of course include embarrassment and distress, or where special category data has been involved. As I'm sure listeners will know, the ICO can apply large fines for serious breaches of UK GDPR, so up to £17.5 million or 4% of the total annual worldwide turnover, whichever is higher. Before issuing you with a penalty, the ICO will issue what is called a notice of intent, sending out its rationale and the proposed amount, and you will be given some time to make written representations, which the ICO will consider. Now, there's a very clear trend for the amount of the ultimate fine to be significantly less than the amount set out in the notice of intent. So, for example, the data breach fines involving British Airways originally were £189 million, but which fell to £20 million. Marriott originally £99 million, which fell to £18.4 million. And Ticketmaster originally £1.5 million, which fell to £1.2. However, you obviously can't guarantee that this will always be the case. The regulatory action policy also sets out aggravating and mitigating factors that will be taken into account in arriving at a fine. Unsurprisingly, action you take to limit the damage to individuals, cooperation in the investigation and quick notification are some of the mitigating factors. Now, in addition to penalty and enforcement notices, the ICO can also issue reprimands. And in June of last year, the ICO announced that it would be resorting more frequently to issuing reprimands rather than fines particularly in relation to public sector bodies. 
Now, a reprimand is a written letter stating that the ICO believes an organisation has not complied with the UK GDPR, typically issued following an ICO investigation, where an infringement is not serious enough to warrant a penalty or enforcement notice. It's also worth noting that from December 2022, the ICO is making all reprimands public unless there is a good reason not to. So while a reprimand does not compel an organisation to do or pay anything, it has a naming and shaming deterrent effect. Indeed, this seems part of a more general policy shift by the ICO to publishing information about issues reported to it, including the identity of the organisation under review, along with the outcome of the ICO's review. Today, I've talked about the ICO's response, but of course, as we discussed in the previous episode, you may face regulatory action by more than one regulator and in more than one jurisdiction, which to reiterate our message from our previous episode is exactly why planning for a data breach is so important. So that's a bit of a snapshot of the regulatory perspective. But Rachel, what about private actions bought by data subjects? Well, as well as the administrative fines or other penalties which the ICO may impose, individuals may also bring claims against data processors in the courts. So under Article 82 of the UK GDPR, a processor can be held liable to an individual for any damage caused by the processing of data, including for non-material damage such as distress. A court can make an order for compensation of the affected individuals by way of damages, and data subjects can also ask courts to make compliance orders under Article 79. As to how the UK courts will deal with private actions brought by data subjects, what we were all watching and waiting to find out last year was how the class action landscape in the UK might change as a result of the Supreme Court's decision in Lloyd and Google. There was a lot of speculation at the time about whether it would open the floodgates for opt-out class actions for data claims in the UK. In reality, it hasn't, for the reasons I'll explain. Lloyd and Google was a claim which was brought under the old 1998 Data Protection Act, so it was pre-GDPR. The claim was brought on behalf of more than 4 million iPhone users who'd been affected by a Safari workaround, which had effectively enabled Google to harvest browser data from the iPhone users without their consent. Mr Lloyd, who was the class representative, sought a uniform amount on behalf of each iPhone user without seeking to prove damage for each individual. The amount sought was £750 per user, giving a total claim value in the region of £3 billion. Compensation was sought on the basis that each and every user had lost control of their data and that they should receive damages as a result. So the Supreme Court had to consider two questions. Firstly, it had to address the question of whether compensation for loss of control can be awarded under the old 1998 Act without evidence of damage or distress. The court held that a claim founded solely on loss of control was untenable and concluded that the mere fact of a non-trivial breach amounting to a loss of control is not enough to warrant an award of compensation. Instead, it's necessary to prove that material damage or distress has been suffered as a result of the breach. Secondly, the court had to think about whether a representative action was an appropriate vehicle for this kind of claim. And the court concluded that the claim was not one where the class had suffered uniform damage or distress and that accordingly compensatory damages could only be assessed by way of an individualised factual inquiry into the particular circumstances of each claimant. 
The court speculated that an effective case management model for this kind of claim would effectively be a two-stage process, whereby a representative action would be brought first on an opt-out basis to determine common issues of liability, and if the claimants were successful at that stage, and the court confirmed that class members were entitled to seek compensation, those individuals could then pursue follow-on claims for damages on an individualised basis. So unsurprisingly, given the economics of bringing that type of claim, claimants haven't really been rushing to the courts with reformulated bifurcated claims. Yeah, the Supreme Court decision effectively acted as a bit of a bucket of cold water to quell the excitement around class actions for data claims. And it's not surprising that a number of representative actions for privacy claims have been dropped in the wake of Lloyd. Now, we've also seen a steady stream of cases through the High Court in the last two years following Warren and DSG retail to suggest that courts will also knock back ambulance chasing data breach claims. So low value claims for trivial data breach incidents, often based on misuse of private information or breach of confidence and claiming for distress. Now, these decisions make de minimis no win, no fee claims less attractive to claimant law firms and should uh, in time hopefully reduce the number of vexatious claims by which some organisations have been plagued. And in Europe, there seems to be a similar approach to non-material damage. A recent opinion of Attorney General of the CJEU also concluded that mere upset is not sufficient to trigger compensation under Article 82 of the EU GDPR. Now, finally, to round off this topic, we should just mention insurance. More of a postscript, really. Cyber insurance covers the losses relating to damage to or loss of information from IT systems and networks. It's a requirement of all cyber policies that any claims against the insured that are covered under the policy are notified to the insurer within a specified period. You'll need to build this into your response plan, as well as the need to make no admissions which might invalidate your cover. These requirements are almost always conditions precedent to the insurer's liability, so cover can be refused if the claim is not notified as required. Many policies provide an incident response package to provide companies with assistance with managing any incident. This often will include IT forensic consultants to contain the IT vulnerability that gave rise to the breach and to restore systems and recover data, public relation consultants, and also lawyers to advise on obligations to notify data breaches to regulators and to data subjects. Some policies will require you to use the insurer's recommended lawyer if a data security incident arises, whilst others permit you to use your own legal advisor instead, but this might require some prior planning and approval. Yeah, that's right. Although we frequently find that our clients' interests and those of their insurers and the insurer's lawyers at times diverge. So the insurer's overriding objective is to limit their exposure under the claim, but a business will, however, have a longer term view and be looking to protect other interests, so things like reputation. So it's therefore always helpful to have independent advisors on board. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode and the series. If you have any feedback, questions or comments on the series, or you're looking for assistance in preparing for or handling a data breach and its fallout, we'd be very happy to hear from you. Please do get in touch using the contact details found on our website. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.